The COVID-19 pandemic changed journalism schools in Canada. Students were suddenly forced to work from home in all kinds of conditions. Instructors had to learn how to teach their material online. In all of that, we started to talk more about our mental health. And then George Floyd was murdered by police and the movement for Black Lives sparked protests around the world. In newsrooms, the upheaval of COVID-19 caused major shifts in how people use technology and how they thought about race and trauma. But what about journalism education? I'm Nanaba Duncan, and this is the Forced Change Podcast. It's a four-part companion piece to a special issue of Facts and Frictions, Fait et Friction, a journalism studies publication produced by J-Schools Canada. There are three episodes in English and one episode in French. Our focus is on how journalism educators changed the way they taught during the COVID-19 pandemic. We held three roundtable discussions featuring journalism educators across the country. In this podcast, you're going to hear those discussions as well as the long-term implications of the pandemic for Canadian journalism education. In this episode, we're going to talk about how the pandemic transformed journalism schools from being a hands-on experience to a virtual one. And I'm sure you have an idea of what that was like as the journalism industry was adjusting and trying to embrace new uses of technology at work, including so many Zoom meetings. Journalism educators had to figure out how to teach students to do this. The conversation you'll hear explores the balance between the need for innovative thinking and prioritizing journalism basics. Professor Andrea Hunter from Concordia University, Winston C., a lecturer at Toronto Metropolitan University, and Carleton University IT coordinator Roger Martin all submitted their own questions in this area, so we brought them together in a discussion that I moderated. Hello, everybody. I'm so grateful that you could make it today. We're going to have a conversation on technology and changing course delivery through the pandemic. Uh, just to set the scene, I'd like for everybody to talk about one of the first technological adjustments that you had to make at your school when the pandemic began. Winston, let's start with you. Thanks so much for having me. I think one of the biggest things during the pandemic, especially when it first started, was adjusting how we delivered the content in a course that's inherently meant to be in studio. And I think that was our biggest change. In a course that I teach where we're in a newsroom and in a studio where students are using industry-grade equipment, we really had to adapt to that quickly. And in some ways, we never really fully adapted to that. And that is something we take away from this pandemic as a key learning. And in other ways, we adapted and it did take some time and we eventually got there. But even then, it didn't necessarily give students the same experience that they wanted mm. in person and in studio. And so mm. there was a little bit of a challenge there. But just like in so many other industries, we just had to pivot and keep going. What about you, Andrea? I was nodding my head as Winston was talking. Mm -hmm. You know, so much of what, what you just said just rang true. Um, I mean, our big question that all of us had, because the students, when they come here, you know, we, they, we have equipment, we have the technology, we have everything. So the big question was, how do we work with whatever students have at home? Some of mm -hmm. them, you know, have equipment that they bought and it's really, you know, great and on par with what we have here and others, um, you know, may have nothing, <laughs> you know, you know, that, so how were we going to adjust our teaching so that we could 
teach, you know, courses in radio and video and multimedia um, to everybody. So that was the big question that we were wrestling with me personally. Um, I, and I was teaching a, a radio class, a newsroom class, um, sounds similar to, to your situation, Winston. And my question was, how do I move the delivery online when it's so entrenched in that physical space? Roger, what about you? What Winston and Andrea are saying sounds entirely familiar to me as someone who was trying to support our entire operation at Carleton, you know, both production-based courses and non-production-based courses. The biggest initial thing that stands out to me, if we set the scene of the beginning of the pandemic, we closed on a Friday and everyone was told to go home and work from home, staff, faculty, and students. And the university was closed for three days uh, the next week. And we were be to be back Thursday, uh, switching all of our classes to online instruction. So we had a window of five days to work with in order to get our initial classes off the ground. And to me, the biggest challenge initially was dealing with video conferencing. We had three yeah. different platforms at the university. Everybody wanted to use something different for a variety of reasons. And uh, it was just getting everybody on that first initial track. So how can we even meet online? That was a big challenge to overcome in a very minor amount of time. We're going to be getting even deeper into everything that everyone just said. But Andrea, with you, you were talking about taking the radio newsroom class into the online Zoom room. How did you make the change? Like, what was one of the first things you had to do? Well, to, to make that happen, I'm actually, um, I'm now thinking back and Roger, you brought me back to those beginning days. And I was actually in the middle of a podcast class when everything shut down. And then it was the, oh my gosh. How, do we, how do we meet online and how do I adjust my expectations for what people are going to produce? Um, and in that class, it was like, okay, I'm working with people who have great equipment and people who don't. And so I had to quickly, as the prof, make adjustments about my expectations about what they could produce. Later on in the pandemic, when I was teaching the radio class, that was a big adjustment because, you know, our radio class, they get in at 8.30 and by noon, they have a show on the air. We have our own studio that they work with. So technically, I was like, how, how do we even do this? Yeah. Luckily, we have, you know, a great, you know, multimedia instructor who works with us and we had um, some great technical TAs. And so we had one person physically in the building, in the studio, operating the board. We had everybody else on Zoom, including me, coming in and, and working that way. So it was like it was like literally we took that physical studio and we moved it online and everybody worked with the technology they had, the computers at home uh, to come in and out of the studio during our live show, which we you know would do every class. So it was pretty, it was pretty technically challenging. At first, I couldn't wrap my head around it. Um, but, you know, a bunch of people got together and said, okay, we, we can actually do this. Uh, we just have to think about it in a different way. You know what I'm trying to wrap my head around is the difference in what everyone has in terms of the students. So, yes, you are adjusting your expectations. But what some people produce is just going to sound better, look better than others, so how do you ignore that? Yeah, and I think that is a huge a huge adjustment that was made through the pandemic and I can see the ramifications now. We've all had to adjust our ideas of what good sound sounds mm -hmm. like. People mm -hmm. are hearing me I'm doing like air quotes about what is good sound because yeah. before I would I would really teach like that that you know we we need to have that you know beautiful in studio sound that you know big rich sound. 
but I had to adjust my expectations. And I think everybody has that, you know, sometimes it's, it's, sometimes you sound like you're far away from the microphone. Um, you know, sometimes there's a lot going on. Sometimes there's like kids running through the background or, or whatever happening. And, and that too is good sound. Like all sound is good sound, I suppose. So that, I, I had to make that adjustments as a prof and, you know, as I worked with what everybody had, and I think I'm not sure, maybe people disagree with me, but over the years, as we sort of come through and through this big change, um, our expectations of, of what good sound is, has evolved, changed. I don't know. <laughs> maybe evolved isn't the right word, but changed yeah. where we're accepting of a lot, like different types of, of sound, depending on, on where people are coming from. It's more inclusive, I suppose, of, of, of what people are working with. I would agree. Uh, Winston, I saw you nodding while Andrea was talking. What were you thinking? Something that was really going through my mind is this, when we think from a learning and teaching perspective and we try to teach more inclusively, you know, we also need to remember that different people have access to different resources. And so we have to remind ourselves to be more flexible with that. I was teaching throughout the pandemic a course called Global Campus Studio, and it was a collaboration between Toronto Metropolitan University, as well as Parul University in India. And um, half of my students were in India. And whenever they, first of all, many students didn't have access to the same level of bandwidth and broadband that we needed to support a strong Zoom connection. And so many of those students ended up having to be video off most of the time. And so that took a level of understanding for us. The other issue was whenever students did have a contribution, they would unmute their microphone and we would hear loud streets or we would hear other siblings and family members also learning at the same time. And that is a reality of their environment. So from from, you know, an equity standpoint, that really important consideration for educators to make sure that we are understanding of the many different situations that students are in. So how would you say that? technology has changed how you teach? So for me, technology has changed in a few different buckets. So first, I would say conceptualizing the content and the stories that we're telling. Because of the different platforms we're telling these stories through, that changes how we tell the stories as well. Length of time, the the you know real estate of the screen. So whether something is going on social, how we're shooting it, that multi-platform thinking, as I'm sure the others in, in um, on this podcast would agree as well, um, has shifted. And the technology that we use to capture that content also has to shift. Then there's developing the content. So working smarter, not harder. I think pre-pandemic, Zoom was new to a lot of people. I know we now leverage artificial intelligence to help us do things like transcribe interviews. That is much more mainstream in how we do our work. Um, and we can use that to our advantage um, in a day-to-day -day workflow. And then when we think about the distribution of our content, that's something that at our school, we've taken a lot of time in the review of the technology and workflows that we have. How do we incorporate better tools to allow students to get content out to more places, but at the same time, not lose the quality of journalism that we're providing on, say, Twitter or YouTube or even something like TikTok and then our traditional more legacy broadcast platforms like te television and radio? 
Uh, Roger, I have, I have a feeling you have lots to say on this because what Winston is talking about is a way of thinking around it. You're an IT coordinator. You've been worked, you've had to deal with changes over in over 20 years that you've been working. What approach do you think that journalism educators should have when they're integrating technology into their teaching and their curriculum? I think it's three things, really. First and foremost, we need to acknowledge and operate from the premise that technology is always in a constant state of flux. It's just a reflection of human nature, of modernity and action. There's always going to be new tools, new ways of doing things, uh, new adaptations, new advances in technology that will come along and upend what we're doing now and give us new directions in which to go. Uh, but I think from a journalism education point of view, part of what we do here in our studios, in our newsrooms, is to emulate what happens in the real world. And the real world is facing the same uh, pressures of change. And so adaptation is the name of the game, especially in the education spaces we're trying to prepare students going forward. But I think we can pull it back and look at the basics of what we're teaching students, the underlying production skills, the concepts of storytelling and, and journalism production. That's the basis for everything. It doesn't matter what the technology is. It doesn't matter what tool comes along. As long as students have a strong grounding in the basic skills of, of journalism and journalism production, they will be able to adapt those tools and even figure out new ways of using tools to tell better stories and to make their journalism more compelling to an audience. So it sounds like you're saying that the focus shouldn't be on the, the actual tools themselves, but rather the, the journalism skills. And then the tools are just, just that, tools for lack of a better word. It's like, you know, a mechanic or a carpenter. They have to master the tools in order to fix a car or build a house, but they need to know where to look, where to start uh, in order to fix that car or to build the house. Like there is a way of doing it, a base way of doing it. And if you don't have that, then you can't master the tools. So I, I'm saying it's it's the basic skills come first and then the tools go on as a layer and teaching students how to apply tools and not be fearful of it is really the name of the game here. That's the real technology skill we need to teach is how to adapt and not be afraid of it. I want to turn to the students now, their actual experience. What have you learned about how students experience the changes during the pandemic? Andrew, I want to start with you. Well, I think the main thing I learned is just how adaptable students are and can be. I was just consistently impressed with, you know, how they embraced the challenge of of moving, moving to a completely, well, a, a different way of learning. And it was, you know, not easy for everybody. <laughs> um, but that's, that's, I think, the thing that struck me the most was how adaptable the students were. Mm. Winston? So I would say one of the things that 
I found really interesting um, throughout the changes of the pandemic, we implemented tools to be almost workarounds to what is supposed to be a studio experience. And consistently throughout the process, students were not only adaptable, but also were extremely willing to provide us feedback in real time. And so we reached out to a variety of vendors, and these vendors provided really great tools for us to adapt in a really challenging time. And those tools in, in, in themselves were constantly changing because they were adapting to um, the different needs of remote production as well. But through and through, the one piece of feedback I got still was that students wanted to be back on campus and back in the studio. And that was the really difficult thing for us mm. to deal with, was how do we bring that back in some element? And so that kind of brings us back to the top of the circle where we have to figure out, well, how do we do that in a way that's fair to everybody while still respecting health and safety guidelines? That was an incredible challenge. I'm going to cut into this conversation here. I thought this was a really interesting point Winston made because it highlights how much students value being in person. So the Force Change team asked students how they felt about the change to a virtual experience. Here's Talad Stockton, who was a journalism student at Carleton University at the beginning of the pandemic. I think that technology skills were the biggest concern for those in my cohort in terms of virtual learning over the pandemic. Um, many of us identified this as the biggest loss um, that we suffered through virtual learning. In terms of our education, I would say personally, I felt that I lost practical experience with audio and video courses. And I think that's had an impact because I don't have as much confidence now when it comes to um, photography or um, audio or visual journalism. And um, that's something that I'm now having to overcome as someone who's trying to enter their career as opposed to a student in a classroom. It's really interesting to think that there's a whole generation of students who just didn't get some of that hands-on experience in school. We're going to get back to the conversation now. Roger talks about what he noticed in students. I noticed they were adaptable, but I also noticed some of them struggling depending on their environment, um, where they were living, you know, and what resources they had access to. And thinking of, you know, universities are located in cities and, and they come and live in cities, but a lot of students went home. And we have a lot of students from rural areas. And as Winston was saying earlier about the students who were in India, we have similar challenges in Canada, believe it or not. We have rural areas in Canada that don't have access to broadband internet. So while there were a lot of good things that came from the pandemic, there's still, it highlighted the inequities uh, that we still have even in Canada and the things we need to do to future-proof ourselves if another pandemic or another crisis comes along where we have to isolate and and go home and one of those areas is clearly you know the rural areas need access to broadband internet if we're to provide an adequate platform for teaching 
I'm also thinking of students who are, yes, they're, they're international. A lot of them, they went back home and they're in different time zones. And so this brings me to the thought about the stress of it all. How did you manage with the stress? Uh, I'm asking you, Winston and Andrea, how did you manage the stress that these students were going through in the class? It was difficult. It was a challenge. And I think it would be a little presumptuous to paint students with one brush and to expect students to be great at all of the different tools we're throwing at them. Many students are well versed with tools. You know, students are expert passive social media consumers. They use TikTok. They're on Instagram. They, they do consume media on social but it doesn't necessarily mean that they are experts in creating content and creating journalism for digital platforms. There's a huge difference and a big um, a dist distinguishing factor there. Um, there were many things I noticed as well, like the, the basics of using a video editor, um, how to put together just a simple copy for, for web. Those are things that in a traditional classroom, we are, as educators, we are experts in teaching in a classroom setting. But then you remove everybody from that setting and put everybody on Zoom. And that's where things get really difficult. And, you know, we, we try to adapt to students by offering one-on-one -on -one sessions, that remedial help that Roger was talking about. And then in other cases... Uh, our department created video tutorials and write-ups, but you can't rely on students to go through and watch and read all of those readme documents and assume that they are just going to be those same kinds of experts that we expect them to be in a classroom. And so that brings stress for students. It brings stress for educators. And that's where I think there was a big learning curve and a lot of adapting that had to happen within the department, but also on the students' part to let us know what works for them and how we can better assist them in their learning experience. So did you find yourself changing things because they were telling you, this isn't working for me, this isn't working for me? Can you give us an example? I see you nodding. Absolutely. We, during the pandemic, created, our, our tech department created a variety of video tutorials. And back to the issue of inequity, we, because we recognize the fact that not everyone has access to consumer cameras and microphones to be able to file their stories, we ended up having a loaner program where students could get a package with a microphone, a camera, um, just the basics that they needed to complete their coursework, um, including these studio classes. And as part of that, we had video tutorials where students, if they didn't know how to manipulate the camera or how to do something like white balance or audio, we had tutorials to do that. And we, in many cases, those videos worked well. And in other cases, it didn't work well. And so an example of adapting was we had to set up actual live tutorials where students could ask questions in real time. Um, and of course, we had to have drop-in sessions where a tech coordinator would be on Zoom for the entire day and people could, could, could book a 15-minute slot where they could ask those questions. But that still relies on a student's willingness to put their hand up and say, I need help. And in some cases, 
many cases, students aren't willing to ask for that help because they weren't comfortable and the technology just added another layer, another barrier. Winston makes a good point here. There really is a gap between providing tools to students and them being willing to use them or even having the capacity to use them. One student told us about what they gained and lost in the context of the virtual experience. Here's Lillian Fridfinson. She was a journalism student at Carleton University at the beginning of the pandemic. So I think the biggest thing I gained from uh, learning to use new technology during the uh, pandemic was our ability to do a lot of interviewing virtually. So using Zoom and then converting that audio into a product we can work with, um, that became a really valuable skill because it saved, I think, a lot of time that maybe before we would have gone out and done an interview in person when we could have just done it on Zoom and put it together really quickly, especially when we were on a time crunch for production days and things like that. Um, but in the same sense, I think we maybe that was maybe also a little bit of a loss because we relied so heavily on using Zoom and Google Meets and platforms that allow you to do interviews virtually. You use lose a bit of that um, that human element when you get to go out into the field, be in the space, meet someone in their space, um, collect more sound, maybe get a face-to-face interaction. Um, I think that came at a cost of learning as of using new technology like Zoom and online interviewing platforms. Even though it's true we lost that in-person experience, we still had to deal with the reality that there was technology we all had to get used to. So let's get back to the conversation now. IT coordinator Roger Martin talks about the mentality we need to approach technology. I think it is really the mindset we bring to the classroom when we're talking about applying technology to our journalism work. Um, If we go in fearful, oh, you know, I hear this all the time, oh, technology never works for me, or I always break something, or I'm afraid I'm going to break it. We need to throw that out the window um, and and realize that, you know, as, as a basic tenet of learning, it's okay to break something. It's okay for it not to work because that's how we learn. That's how humans learn, um, like human development. Children make lots of mistakes as they're developing and they learn from those mistakes and move on with their life. If we apply that same mindset to technology, you know, assume you're going to break it, assume it's not going to work for you. And, you know, don't be impinged by that. Like, don't let that stop you from going forward. Just get on with it and get over it. And you know what? If you break it, awesome, because that means you're (laughs) going to figure out how to fix it. Winston, what new tools are you using that came out of the pandemic and what's being phased out? So there are a handful of tools. And when we think about technology in newsrooms and how we try to emulate the real world in our classrooms, we think about a few things. You know, it's a very siloed way of thinking, the old way of thinking. If you're on television, you likely use something like iNews to write scripts. And that system will talk to the control room and send 
scripts to the teleprompter. And then you've, of course, got your control room technology and you create graphics somewhere. If you're on the radio, you might use Burley and, and various tools within radio control rooms to bring a show to air. If you're a podcaster, it might only be for audio. And now we're put in a position where we have to think about leveraging tools that allow you to do a, a multitude of, of um, things, including, you know, if we're in digital production, we might not only use WordPress for, for displaying web content, we might use WordPress to create a nice frame for a video live stream. So that's an example of using a tool that allows you to have a multi-platform approach. I know when, when I think about something like iNews, it's a very dated piece of software. We're all used to using it because we have to. You work at the CBC, you work at CTV, you're going to use iNews at some point. And it's important that we teach students how to use the fundamentals of iNews. But at the same time, you pay so much money to have access to iNews, but you only use the core functions of it to create a, a rundown, maybe put some scripts and technical cues. What else do we use it for? So are there better tools out there that might enable remote production that allows students to log on at home, that allows students to maybe build and video edit right within that platform and then distribute that onto social at the same time? And when we think about the possibility of something like that, there are vendors out there that have tools that offer that kind of promise, but there's no real industry standard tool that really runs with that right now that might even be used in in the real world and you know an example of a tool that we used at tmu during the pandemic is a tool called stage 10 and so stage 10 allowed our students to have a control room type environment at home and so they would log on and we would have one of our technical directors in their office or at home and they would load videos, lower thirds, all of the camera sources and resources that they needed to cut the show. And then our students would log on as a resource along with their scripts and we would take the show to air. There would be a live chat feed where our control room could communicate with students almost like a talkback IFB system. It wasn't foolproof. It certainly was not perfect that that's just part of the reality. And it is one of those tools that we will keep around post COVID crazy era, because it allows us to offer access to more students. And the reality is you can only have so many students in a studio, so many students in a control room. And so by offering these types of remote production tools, you're enabling access to more students. Is there any one tool that you would say, no, never again, I'm done, it's over, that was a pandemic thing, goodbye? Stage 10. Really? It, really, it, was a re it sounds really cool. It does. I was about to go and load it up myself. I mean, I would look it up, but it definitely has its challenges. And when you're trying to emulate something that is inherently an in-person experience, being in a control room, using state-of-the-art industry equipment, you just can't replicate it. Okay. Andrea, what about you? What new tools are you using because of the pandemic beyond Zoom? And what is being phased out? Oh my gosh. Actually, I was just thinking as you were talking, Winston, that the one move that the, the video people did is 
is, you know, I guess we were already moving in that direction, but a real push on obviously mobile journalism, which I think is like kind of changing like the whole ethos of how we're doing. And we're thinking about more in terms of moving that way to respond to what the industry is doing. Um, but also through our experience in the pandemic, we're realizing how that can happen. You know, it's maybe not as hard as we thought to like move into this different kind of era. Uh, Pre-pandemic, when I was editing students' work, it was often in person and it was often like me right there with them going back and forth. Editing audio, you have to be talking out loud. So that in sort of person experience with me and the and the student and they would be you know, talking out loud and we would be changing it there. Of course, online, what we would do is, you know, share screens and we'd both be working on the screen and both talking it out. And I was like, wow, this really works. <laughs> Why was I not doing it before? So I'm going to, I'm going to, carry that that forward. Um, what have we phased out? Oh, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I have to say I'm happy to be back in person because I, I think there's so much value to that. So I suppose we're phasing the Zoom out a little bit. <laughs> I'm going to ask you, Roger, what tools did you notice people really took to and, and what are some tools that folks are just done with now? We took a little bit of a different approach at Carleton and we bought Adobe Creative Cloud licensing for all of our students. Adobe is platform agnostic, so it didn't matter if they were on a Mac or a PC, they would have the same software environment and experience. The university covered the costs of, of the licensing. So that was very important to us to provide a standard platform so that every student had the same experience, the same learning experience. But we also did that because a lot of that software is used in different courses right across the program. And so we could introduce it in the early years, teaching them the basics. And then as you move into third year and fourth year, you can move into the more intermediate and mastery level skill sets. And by the time the students graduate, they have a really strong understanding of those industry standard tools that they will be using in any job they do when they go out. So the pandemic has shown us how we can take tools that were not really intended for journalistic use, but they're actually great tools for journalism. I learned that teams will automatically transcribe as it's recording. I'm not a lover of Microsoft Teams. I prefer Zoom. But for that, the fact that it will spit out a whole transcript by who said what as it's recording the call makes it a great tool for journalism. Because I know students struggle and spend lots of time transcribing their clips. Um, Doesn't Zoom so do that as well? It does, but it's not as clean. The, the oh, interesting. Microsoft Teams transcript is really clean. The format is wonderful. Zoom just spits out a chunk of text, which you then have to go format. So, you know, there's always little ins and outs of, of these tools. But uh, yeah, I'd love not to spend all day on Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what? This brings me to the question of, of us as educators and how we dealt with things during the pandemic. I personally was not okay. I was not okay. Um, and I know that a lot of us were not okay during that time. We all had to deal with it. Um, knowing what you did or how you managed things during the pandemic, what is something that you would do differently if another pandemic came? How do you think you would handle yourself differently as an educator? Well, I think, um, 
picking up on, on something that Roger said earlier, I wouldn't worry so much about the technology. I think we know now that we can work with what we have. Um, and I think we know now better that technology changes quickly and we can work with, with whatever's coming at us. And I think I would focus more as you know, we all kind of, I think did on, on the, the storytelling techniques or sort of the basics behind like underneath all this, you know, how do you investigate? How do you interview? How do you, you know, create a story from all these, you know, excellent interviews that you have. And just remember, you know, always that that's sort of what it comes down with. The technology will change our, you know, ability to to use technology will change depending on circumstances. And, and the journalism always comes back to those fundamentals. So I guess thinking from an education kind of point of view, I wouldn't worry so much. Roger, um, you've already talked about us going back to the basics and just being flexible, uh, adapting and how that's the name of the game. Is there anything else that you would advise to educators if there was another pandemic? I would advise educators to start contingency planning. Another pandemic is probably an inevitability. It's coming. Oh, it could be a climate-based crisis that happens and upends things and changes things. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world right now. So, you know, getting back to basics, but being flexible are highly adaptable skills. The pandemic has taught us that we can change and adapt and very quickly. I think that's human nature is to, you know, figure things out quickly in a crisis. But as educational institutions and even departments and individual faculty working together as teams can plan for this in the future, we can keep a pulse on what's happening in the industry, keep a pulse on what tools are out there and how we might use them. The, the last pandemic was unexpected and we didn't have time to plan for that. So if anything, it's taught us that we need to plan. If, if we don't want to be so frantic and hectic at coming up with solutions, we can plan ahead for this kind of crisis that we know can come. Thank you all for this conversation. I really, I, I know that some educators are going to listen to this and they will take a lot out of it. And I'm so glad that you all participated. So thank you, everybody. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Oh, Andrea says Reaper. It's Reaper. It's always amazing. <laughs> or any other kind of, you know, free download on phones as well. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> yes, Reaper. yes, yes. That's great. Okay, everybody. Thank, Thank you so you. much. That was great. Mm -hmm. That Thanks. was really good. Thank you. Technology isn't the only thing that changed during the pandemic. Conversations about mental health highlighted the need to pay attention to trauma-informed approaches, both in education and in journalism itself. In the next episode, we're going to talk about what a trauma-informed approach looks like in the classroom. Un balado en français existe. Des étudiantes et des étudiants y font entendre leur voix. Ils décrivent de quelle façon la pandémie a brouillé leur formation en journalisme et comment ils se sont débrouillés. Jean-Sébastien Marier parle de journalisme de données. Christiana Alexiou nous amène dans ses réflexions sur une pédagogie empathique et gentille. Chantal Francoeur est à l'animation. 
Force Change, the podcast and special issue were made possible thanks to the funding and support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and J-Schools Canada. It's also supported by Carleton University's Future Learning Lab, the School of Journalism and Communication, the Faculty of Public Affairs, and the Office of the Vice President. This episode was produced by Wafa El Reyes. Our production coordinator is Nathan Fung. Senior producer and host is me, Nanapa Duncan. Thank you for listening.